Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I hope that wherever this finds you, that you're doing well and staying safe and healthy. We're still in the throes of the pandemic. We know that it's surging in many places around the around the country and definitely in California. So we are still staying home and and trying to do everything we can to to stay safe and to keep those around us uh, safe as well. Um, it is the week of July twenty sixth, twenty twenty, and summer is just rolling along. It's just, uh, it's almost August. That's so wild. Uh, next week, we are starting a four-week series, Women, Religion, and Revolution. So be sure to tune into that. Kelly will be uh, speaking next week. And then we have three fantastic uh, guest speakers uh, lined up for the month of August. So you don't want to miss that. Um, that's coming up in the next four weeks. We are also doing a sunset hike uh, on Wednesday, August 12th at 7 p.m. Stay tuned for more details in the coming weeks on that, on social media, and all of those kinds of places. Um, you know, it'll be social distance, wear a mask, that kind of thing. So um, hopefully things obviously get better over the next couple of weeks, but we we shall see. Um, I just want to make a quick note that, um, you know, we just feel feel for everybody so deeply that is still fighting this pandemic. Those that are doing really important work during this time to save lives, help those in need. Um, there is so much um, to be encouraged by. And I know there's so much dire news out there um, from, from protests and brutality and the federal government, um, you know, putting... Uh, federal agents into into certain cities and um, all the violence that has occurred. But there is so much to be encouraged by. So many people that are being generous and and loving. And um, I just want to send out so much gratitude and love to to all of those who are doing the important work. And um, you know, prayer for those that who have fought the virus, who are losing loved ones, who are out of work right now. Uh, we know that the moratorium on evictions ended this week. Uh, we know that at the end of the month, the unemployment um, payments end, and there is no, there's no sign of a federal response to any of that uh, devastation that is based on the pandemic. I mean, all of these people, I think the number that I saw was over 50 million people are still unemployed through no fault of their own. And we have a Senate Republican, a Republican-controlled Senate that refuses to to help those who uh, are suffering because of a failed pandemic response from the federal government, particularly the White House. Um, it's clear to be uh, I think it's important to be clear in our compassion, but almost, almost it's it's almost as as important to be clear in our critique that the deaths and the economic devastation could have easily been prevented with a competent federal response. You can't solve the economic crisis until you solve the health crisis. I've heard that so many times, and there was a group of a uh, hundred health officials this week. Um, that made it clear, you know, we have to start over. And in part of their response said, you know, if our, if our, um, 
response would have been as effective as Germany's, by mid-June, we would have only had 36,000 deaths compared to our 115,000 that we had at mid-June. They also said that if our response was as effective as South Korea or Australia or Singapore, only 2,000 people would have died by mid-June if we would have had Australia's response. They, they, they go so as far as, as to say that 99% of COVID deaths in the U.S. could have been prevented. I mean, this is not to mention anything of those who have lost work or businesses because of the failed health response. So I think we need to um, be encouraged by the level of love and compassion that we're seeing in so many sectors of life, but also be very clear that what we are going through right now, uh, all of the, the loss of life, all of the economic devastation could have been prevented by the Republican-controlled Senate and the Republican-controlled White House. Okay, I'll get off my my ranting here, but um, I just let's just keep um, those who are doing the important work and those who are suffering right now in in prayer, and really pray for for those that are in positions of of power to to do the important work to help those in need. Okay, so let's let's transition into this week's uh, podcast. And I want to start out by reading a poem that I think I've read at, at Mission Hills before uh, called Bone by Mary Oliver. Understand, I am always trying to figure out what the soul is and where hidden and what shape. And so last week, when I found on the beach the ear bone of a pilot whale that may have died hundreds of years ago, I thought maybe I was close to discovering something for the ear bone is the portion that lasts the longest in any of us, man or whale, shaped like a squat spoon with a pink scoop where once in the lively swimmer's head it joined its two sisters in the house of hearing. It was only two inches long and thought the soul and thought the soul might be like this. So hard, so necessary, yet almost nothing. Beside me, the gray sea was opening and shutting its wave doors, unfolding over and over, its time-ridiculing roar. I looked, but I couldn't see anything through its dark-knit glare. Yet don't we all know the golden sand is there at the bottom? Though our eyes have never seen it, nor can I, our hands ever touch it or ever catch it. Lest we sit down, lest we sift it down into fractions and facts, certainties, and what the soul is, also, I believe, I will never quite know. Though I play at the edges of knowing, truly I know our part is not knowing, but looking and touching and loving, which is the way I walked on softly through the pale pink morning light. Okay, so I, I think that poem gives us some 
hints and insights into our gospel reading for for this morning, which is a series of of parables. And uh, I'll kind of go through them. Uh, And I guess our question of the week is something like, what is your deepest or hidden question? What is your deepest or hidden question? Maybe that's a little too um, maybe that's a little too personal to talk about on a Sunday morning Zoom, but maybe it's a worthwhile question to ponder. What is your deepest, or what is a hidden question that you have? Um, I'm going to read this morning the gospel reading out of the CEB translation, Matthew thirteen. 31 through 33, and then 44 through 52. The parable of the mustard seed. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and planted in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's the largest of all vegetable plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds in the sky come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in a bushel of wheat flour until the yeast had worked its way all through the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that someone hid in a field, which someone else found and covered up. Full of joy, the finder sold everything and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he found one very precious pearl, he went and sold all that he owned and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that people threw into the lake and gathered all kinds of fish. When it was full, they pulled it to shore, where they sat down and put the good fish together into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. That's the way it will be at the end of the present age. The angels will go out and separate evil people from the righteous people, and they will throw the evil ones into a burning furnace, and there will be weeping and grinding of their teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. They said to him, yes. Then he said to them, therefore, every legal expert who has been trained as as a disciple for the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings old and new things out of their treasure chest. Okay, so there is a lot going on in all of those parables. Uh, So I want to, I want to break down and kind of look at this, each one in, in kind of a, in in a particular way, but by no means is this uh, the final world word on any of these parables. Um, These are just some some gathered thoughts from things um, that I've been thinking about this week in regards to all of these parables. There are common themes. Obviously, you probably picked up on on some themes yourself as I was reading. Uh, but I want to talk about the intrusive gospel. How intrusive uh, the gospel is in all of these stories, um, and. Yeah, let's get let's get started on this first parable. Okay, so one interesting thing about the parable of the mustard seed, and it kind of goes off of what Josh was talking about last week, is that 
Jesus is a bad farmer. All right. This seed is hidden in the ground, but the mustard seed, it intentionally disrupts and subverts everything. The mustard seed could be uh, a weed or it could be sown in the garden like this person um, sows the seed in the field. Um, But it subverts and disrupts everything. It's not a particularly uh, helpful plant, even though it was grown for spices and that kind of thing in, in the first century. But one thing about this is that it cannot be contained. I think that's one thing that we see in this parable um, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom. It's something that is small, hidden in the ground, and it unexpectedly grows and disrupts everything. At Mission Hills, we've talked about uh, pirate theology, which is a term that I, I get from Kester Bruin. I don't know if he actually calls it that, but it's this idea that theology done well gives away freely to the masses what has been limited and hoarded for the few, the elite, or the chosen. It's something that cannot be contained. And that's what I think about when I hear this parable. Um, another thing about the, the mustard seed is that it's pervasive beyond just human life. Um, so when we think about the heaven, kingdom of heaven or we think about the gospel, it, it intrudes upon the entire world, the entire universe in its mysteriousness. Christ reconciles all things. I want us to hear the parables, all of these, um, as messages to us communally and universally, because the message of the gospel is much more weird and mysterious than just an individual reading and some kind of takeaway. It's, it's moving, it's disrupting, it's the seed hidden in the, gar- hidden in the field, and then it grows into this bush plant thing. Um, so it could, have been, it could have been a weed, unwelcome, it could be a plant in your garden, uh, but the kingdom of heaven includes everything, weeds and wheat, good and bad, everything in between. Um, if Jesus wanted to give us a, an image for the kingdom with a tree, scholars have pointed out that the cedar tree would have been a better choice, that that would have been already in the uh, imagination of the people that he would have been speaking to. So that would have been a better image uh, for the kind of tree that would be representing the kingdom of heaven and all the birds kind of resting on the cedar tree. But Jesus talks about it being a a tiny seed that grows into like, basically what, what people say is that the mustard tree is like, it's an overgrown bush. Like it's like a 10 foot tall bush. It wouldn't be anything to brag about. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be a symbol of success. So what is Jesus trying to say? This is like a small seed that just grows into like a bush where a bunch of birds come and land in it. Also not something you want in your field or garden, an overgrown bush with a bunch of birds around. That's not something that would be good for a field or a garden. So it's important to be for us to remember that um, the kingdom of heaven in these parables, and particularly in this one, for sure, that God's movement in the world is God's movement, not ours. And it's much more hidden and disruptive and engrossing than we would like to think it would be. Uh, to think that the image of the cedar tree would have been kind of a, a real, like, very clear um, 
powerful image of what the kingdom of heaven would be. It would, it would make for a better piece of art to have this giant cedar tree and the birds of heaven coming and landing in it. But God's movement in the world is hidden, disruptive, and kind of odd, really, when you think about it. Um, the birds we might deem unwanted in the garden uh, or uninvited come to rest in God's weed bush thing that we're also a part of. We're included in that whole thing. Okay, so let's let's move on. Um, I'm going to try to run through this um, as quickly as possible so we, we don't have to be here all day. Um, okay, same goes for Jesus' next parable of the yeast being hidden into the flour. I like the CEB translation here because it says the woman hid the leaven. Uh, she hides it in... Uh, I think the it says three measures of flour, which is more flour than anybody would ever need or have. It would feed over 100 people. So it's a lot of flour. And we have this image of the kingdom of heaven being like a woman who hides the leaven in flour. It's a, it's a very bizarre image. And leaven is another one of those corrupting as a mold ingredient. It lightens the dough. Um, but it, it could be seen as a, another symbol of corruption. Like it takes over the whole thing. So if you think about enough flour to feed a hundred people and this woman comes and hides, um, this sort of like corrupting force that overtakes everything, the, the leaven raises the whole loaf, not just part of it. So again, moving away from this sort of like individual aspect of trying to understand the parables and in, in seeing it from a cosmic perspective, the entire universe is transformed. The entire kingdom of heaven is, is so all-consuming and overtaking and unexpected. The work of, um, the work of God in grace and justice and mercy, um, it, it is all-consuming uh, it, it looks, I think, uh, ridiculous to to culture, to power structures, to uh, principled responsibility. Uh, the gospel is out of our control, and it's a con- it's a corrupting force, ruining all of our prejudices, all of our preconditions for how we think things should work out in our lives and in the world. It takes over everything. Uh, Kelly wrote in her blog. Uh, this week about true and abiding deep grace. And she she brought up this word hesed. And I think that's a good idea to kind of understand these parables. The power of the, the gospel and the message of Jesus is that God is set loose upon the world. Incarnational, wild, uncontrolled, like a weed planted in a field, like... Um, a yeast overtaking, you know, enough flour to feed a hundred people. It's just like, it's ridiculous. Um, like Kelly mentioned, God is not, um, God is not some divine arbiter who controls subjects or demands some kind of personal moral standard. God is dynamically subverting everything in the universe toward love. Turns us in the world into love, like a corrupting leaven being worked into everything. It's uncontrollable. This is, I think, deep grace. 
It's abiding. It is. It's already, wor- it's already working in the world. It leaves us with nothing but love. It's already, it's already hidden in the flower. Uh, I was, uh, many of you know, John Lewis, uh, congressman, passed away this week, civil rights hero, uh, unbelievable person. And I came across this, um, I came across this quote from, from one of his books this week. And he, sa- he says this, you are a light. Never let anyone, any person, or any force dampen, dim, or diminish your light. Study the path of others to make your way easier and more abundant. Lean toward the whispers of your own heart. Discover the universal truth and follow its dictates. Release the need to hate, to harbor division, and the enticement of revenge. Release all bitterness. Hold only love, only peace in your heart, knowing that the battle of good to overcome evil is already won. Choose confrontation wisely. But when it is your time, do not be afraid to stand up, speak up, and speak out against injustice. And if you follow your truth down the road to peace and the affirmation of love, if you shine like a beacon for all to see, then the poetry of all the great dreamers and philosophers is yours to manifest in a nation, in a world community, and a beloved community that is finally at peace with itself. And I think that points us to this message that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in the field. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven hidden in the flower. It's already growing and mixed in around you. So what is our response to this revelation of hidden grace that's already around us, that's already working in us? The second set of parables that I read, um, they are spoken to the disciples. So we can think of these as how we might respond to this grace that leaves us with love, that's working in and around us, that's working within us. So the first, the first one is the story of the treasure hidden in a, in a field. So there's a worker, perhaps, or a trespasser even, that comes across, they find this treasure in the field. Uh, again, the kingdom is not evident to everyone. The, the, the person that comes across this treasure has to dig it up and then they rebury it. So, um, you know, once the person finds the treasure, then they sell everything they have to buy the field. And I think this teaches us once again that once, once the deep grace that Kelly spoke about that she wrote about, once that deep grace sinks in, nothing really else matters. Again, this is why I think, uh, I think relentless love is so foolish to culture. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is not a, it's not a meritocracy. We're used to living in a society that is a meritocracy. What you do equals what you get. Um, how good you are at something equals how much you, uh, your chances of getting hired or how much you will make. Uh, the, the kingdom of heaven is not practical. It's intrusive. It, you know, it's, it has nothing to do with common sense. You know, in, um, in our society, in our culture, we talk a lot about common sense. Um, 
the kingdom of heaven is not, it does not uh, line up well with anything that we would consider common sense or practical about how we live our lives. We, we think about uh, like quite practical questions like what about our savings or what about our 401k or career path or whatever expectation or our end game might be. But this story is about somebody who once he finds something, he sells everything he has to go buy the field. The kingdom of heaven is not responsible and neither is the genuine response. It's all consuming and irrational. Uh, Robert Capon, the writer, has an interesting spin on, on this parable when he reminds us that we will all one day, quote, buy the farm. That is, we're all going to die. This is universally true of everything in the universe that has come and gone and will one day pass away. And he points this out, quote, Therefore, since no one anywhere at the time will ever finally be without death, no one on earth, in heaven or hell, will ever be without the reconciliation of Jesus. The gospel intrudes upon everything. And yes, uh, we, we will all die. And love will even when there. Okay, next parable. Uh, okay, parable of the pearl is a different d- dynamic, uh, but it's similar, and it seems ridiculous in its own right. So we know uh, the person is not maybe, he's definitely not a, a worker or working class or poor. He's a rich, he's a merchant um, in some way. This searches for pearls. I don't know anything about pearls, but this guy does. And so he's searching and searching. And once he finds a particular one that he likes, he sells everything he has. And what's interesting about this is uh, the phrase for in this text is strong for that the merchant sells, quote, all things whatsoever. Um, he leaves he leaves nothing on the table but the pearl that he was looking for. He sells all things whatsoever. This seems dumb, right? This, seems, this makes no sense. Um, but the gospel makes no sense. Uh, Capon points out that T.S. Eliot's writing uh, when he says, the drawing of this love in the voice of this kind of calling is a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. Costing not less than everything. So what TSL is saying here is that once you've been called by this kind of love, you realize that nothing else matters. And in the, in the Christian tradition, we have similar stories from contemplatives and mystics who remember and know this um, experience at the deepest level. They renounce everything. They renounce everything because they truly understand in their experience that they already possess everything. Uh, Incarnational love in the experience of of God's movement, of grace in our lives— is it's embodied it's it's um it's not a 
we, we relinquish a degree of needing to search for external fulfillment. I think when we, we get this at an experiential level, um, we start, we stop looking for some kind of X, Y, and Z out there that will one day make us happy that, uh, you know, a perfect world awaits when we get rid of Trump, you know, whatever it is out there separate from us that, once that external thing is fulfilled, then we will be happy. Grace is already abiding. It's already here. It's already mixed into the flower. And once you find it, you're willing to, you're willing to, to sell everything. Uh, so grace is not striving. Grace is not competing. Grace is not accomplishing, succeeding, because God has already given it. We only need to find this and abide truthfully in this kind of love. Okay. Uh, lastly, there's the story of uh, the fishing. Uh, and in short, we can maybe sum this up by, by thinking about it as God does the sorting and we do the fishing. Um, What's interesting about this text is that the word, um, in English, we have the word fish here uh, in the CEB and I think in most English translations, but uh, the text doesn't actually ever ever use the word fish. Um, this scene is uh, the scene of a net, but a particular kind of net, uh, a drag net that's thrown into the water and is catching everything. So we assume good fish, bad fish, uh, beer cans, whatever. Josh mentioned last week that the weeds and the wheat grow together, and then God sorts. Same principle here in this text applies. Um, we must only do the fishing. So we have to we have to um, resist the temptation to to demonize, ostracize, otherize whoever. Whoever we can't stand, right? Think of that person in your mind. We have to avoid the temptation to to otherize, or at least like make that an ultimate thing. Um, remember in the first parable, the unwanted birds find shade in God's bush too. Um, so whenever we think about this fishing, this net that's dragging and scooping up everything in its wake, is is being sorted by God toward love, um, that it's catching everything. Uh, and we're, we're both being caught in, in doing the catching, but I guess I want to be clear as well, that this is not relinquishing, uh, moral clarity in the face of injustice, just because we have an understanding that God's love is encompassing and scooping up everything. Right, it's not relinquishing some kind of moral clarity. Um, being caught in the dragnet of grace, so to speak, doesn't mean allowing bullshit or oppression. Okay, I kind of want to be clear on that, um, and maybe you can push back on Sunday on that with me a little bit. Um, but being caught up in the dragnet of grace doesn't doesn't mean allowing injustice. Uh, we've talked about the quote before, justice is what love looks like in public. God's love 
yes, encompasses all, which is to say that we recognize love has yet to be realized in our world and in everyone's experience. Um, I was listening to... uh, the beat with Ari Melbourne this week. And he had ice cube and John Meacham, uh, talking about, um, police brutality and racial injustice and the historical perspective in, in this moment. And from, from a historian's per- perspective and John Meacham, you know, made it clear that Martin Luther King's statement that the moral arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice. Maybe you've heard this, this line before the moral arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice. And John Meacham made it clear that this doesn't happen in history unless people are moved in love to bend it to their will. And I think that's something that uh, uh, Cory Booker has talked about it as talked about as well. Is that it takes people like John Lewis to bend that moral arc of the universe verse towards justice. Uh, it doesn't happen with people caught in the net of uh, God's grace uh, and love. It, it requires selling everything they have for the pearl. It requires buying the farm. Um, I guess to close, I have another quote from from John Lewis here, uh, and I know we're we're running long on time. Uh, yeah, I'll just read this. Uh, I always he's, he writes this. I always understood the idea of the ultimate redeemer, Christ on the cross, but now I was beginning to see that it is something that is carried out in every one of us. That the purity of unearned suffering is a holy and effective thing. It affects not only ourselves, but it touches and changes those around us. It opens us and those around us to a force beyond ourselves, a force that is right and moral, the force of righteous truth that is at the basis of human conscience. Suffering puts us and those around us in touch with our consciences. It opens and touches our hearts. It makes us feel compassion where we need to and guilt if we must. Suffering, though, can be nothing more than a sad and sorry thing without the presence on the part of the sufferer of a graceful heart, an accepting an open heart, a heart that holds no malice towards the inflictors of his or her suffering. That is a difficult uh, concept to understand, and it is even more difficult to internalize, but it has everything to do with the way of nonviolence. We are talking about love here, not romantic love, not the love of one individual for another, not loving something that is lovely to you. This is a broader, deeper, more all-encompassing love. It is a love that accepts and embraces the hateful and the hurtful. Dr. King would often say, we've got to love people no matter what. Most of all, he would say, we must love the unlovable. Love the hell out of them, he would say. And he really meant that literally. If there is hell in someone, if there is meanness and anger and hatred in him, we've got to love it out. 
powerful, powerful um, piece. And I think this is God's dragnet moving through time. And can we listen to these messages? Can we be so moved by love that we only love and continue to love and love? Justice is what love looks like in public. The gospel is intrusive. As John Lewis said, it, love is all-encompassing. And, you know, speaking of injustice, when the boot of empire is on the necks of the oppressed, you know, it doesn't mean we blithely say, oh, grace covers the oppressors, because of course it does. No, love removes the boot, which is no small endeavor, obviously. But that's what love does. It doesn't sit on the sidelines. It's as incarnational as Jesus himself. Messy, yes. Complex, yes. Mysterious, but always encountering the lowly and blessing the despised. Uh, we've seen, uh, as I mentioned earlier, horrific um, response to peaceful protests um, are, is usually met with greater and greater violence. And this is perhaps why Jesus speaks of the kingdom as a wild and not very aesthetically pleasing and corrupting force like leaven and bread. It's more anarchy than law and order. God's preferential option for the poor in and through Jesus um, remains true for us today. It doesn't exclude those in power and privilege. But finding grace will always be like going through the eye of a needle for most of us. So in closing, may, may the gospel intrude upon our lives, like deep abiding grace that's already mixed into the flower. May this good gospel, may this grace be planted in our field. May it be hidden in the flower of our lives, and may we come to realize that it's worth more than anything. Okay, I think we'll close it there. Uh, hope to see you on Zoom on Sunday, and uh, be well. <laughs>